Well, good morning. Good morning. <laughs> Unless it's not, and that's okay. We all have those mornings where it's a little stressful getting out of the house. Um, most Sunday mornings, or most days that we have to leave the house, it's a little stressful for us. Telling the children a dozen times to get their shoes on, and then they remind us that they can't get their shoes on by themselves. <laughs> but... This morning, we were able to get everybody in order and out of the house. So it's good to be gathered with you this morning, the gathering of Applegate Church. And I like to say the gathering of Applegate Church because, frankly, when we dissipate, even though we have a church building and it has our sign on it, it's just a building. It's not the church until we come back together and we're gathered together It's the church that when we are fellowshipping, when we're in home groups, when we're in rehearsals, when we're gathered together for Bible studies, when we're gathered together for second Saturday servants, that's when the church is together. So I'd like to say welcome back to the gathering of Applegate Community Church this morning. As we worship the Lord together, let me pray and ask the Lord that he would bless our time in his word. Father, thank you for gathering us back together once again. Lord, even as we gathered this morning, we think of those saints who have gone before us, who have been a part of this community. And even then, many of them have fallen asleep. One day they will be awakened to their new resurrection body and we will be with them. And we will rejoice again together as we worship you in the new heavens and the new earth. And that is our blessed hope that we would be gathered together in our resurrection bodies, worshiping forever eternally, forever and ever without pain or sin or trials, or tribulations. Father, as we're gathered together this morning, and as we hear from your word, the word that you have given us to know you, and in light of your glorious holiness, to know ourselves, that we still remain in this body, that we are sinners. And yet, for those of us who have been redeemed in Christ, we are a new creation begun And that you are doing a good work in us and you will be faithful to complete that work until the end. Father, bless your word. May your spirit be working in our hearts to be convicted by it, that we will be sanctified from one glory to the next. This is our prayer this morning as we hear the preached word together as this community. Praying this in Jesus' wonderful name. Amen. Well, as we look at our world, the world around us, we look at television and radio and movies that are produced. We look at the news and we look at celebrities and stars and everybody, really. Everyone is looking for something to make them happy. It's the pursuit of happiness. I mean, our, our country was founded on the pursuit of happiness, right? Those pilgrims, those Puritans who came over on the ships, who landed at Plymouth Rock, who settled in Jamestown, who were escaping persecution, their desire was to find freedom and to pursue the happiness that they sought in their way of life. And that was our country, which is fairly young. It's the same story for all the history of the nations, really, of people gathered together who desire to find happiness in their way of life. It's almost as if we're ingrained with the desire to pursue happiness. 
Some people go, ah, we, we shouldn't pursue happiness. It's actually wrong. They use pejorative terms like hedonism. It's the absolute pursuit of personal happiness. And yet, is it wrong? I mean, if every human that has ever existed has desired to pursue happiness, is there a possibility that the pursuit of happiness is ingrained in us? A desire to pursue whatever is going to satisfy us? I mean, we have the history of the world right here in our hands. And even in Genesis, I think it shows us that our desire is to pursue happiness. Where we mess up over and over and over and over and over and over again, as we've seen in the history of the world, is what we pursue to bring our happiness. See, we were made to be in relationship with God. We were made to dwell with him. And that dwelling with God, the relationship with God, is what brought us ultimate happiness. And yet, the liar slithered on in, walked up at that time. Snakes had legs. The serpent had legs and it walked up to Eve and it made her question what she was finding her happiness in. Did God really say if you eat of this tree? I think God's trying to keep you from what's really gonna make you happy. If you just eat of this tree, you'll have the same knowledge that God has and that will really make you happy. That will really blow your satisfaction socks off. So go ahead, Eve, eat it. And while you're at it, give some to your husband too. And there was the beginning of man pursuing what he believed would make him happy. The lie They ate of the forbidden fruit and their eyes were open to see. Yeah, that's not gonna make us happy. In fact, not only is it not gonna make us happy, but it's gonna bring death and destruction and loneliness and hurt. And the history of the world and the history of nations is over and over again, that same thing playing out. Time after time after time. So that brings us to our country. And we read the intro of the Declaration of Independence written by Thomas Jefferson and edited by a group of five men. As they looked at King George oppressing the people here who had really become their own people, crazy King George and said, he's not allowing us to pursue our happiness So we declare our independence. We hold these truths to be self-evident. That all men are created equal. That they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. See, our own country was founded on the desire to pursue happiness. As humans, it's one of the greatest desires of our hearts to find that deep satisfaction in life. And as I said, we all have these ideas of what's going to make us happy. However, the problem is, is that most men wind up endlessly pursuing things that they believe will make them happy, but they bring momentary satisfaction. I am going to say this, and it will be on record, that sin will make you happy. It's fun. It is. Teenagers, sin is fun. Adults, sin is fun. Otherwise, people wouldn't do it. (laughs) But it ends. 
And oftentimes that fun, that satisfaction, that happiness, it crashes. It's like loading up on a bunch of junk food, like my kids would love to do. And then that sugar rush ends and you feel exhausted and tired and cranky. I remember being in high school and someone telling me, sin is not fun. And I go, really? Nah, I don't believe it because I've had fun doing it. But it ends. And God has given us a conscience. And that conscience bothers us. We know when we've done something that we shouldn't. When the fun has ended and we're sitting there in our lonely thoughts, we know that we pursued something that we shouldn't have. And history is the long story of man finding anything that would make them happy apart from God. It's the long, sad history. C.S. Lewis says this, indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition with infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea, we are far too easily pleased. See, God has set before us ultimate happiness, ultimate satisfaction. And yet we go around like a child making mud pies when we've been offered a vacation at the ocean. Go, no, I'm good. I'm sit here in the hood making my mud pies. God doesn't think our desires are too strong. They're too weak. We settle for junk food when we've got a steak and lobster dinner waiting for us. I love Twinkies. I'll admit that. My wife cringes every time I say that, or she finds a wrapper. <laughs> I do. I love Twinkies. One time, a long time ago, someone sent me a care package and it was literally a box about this big. I'm like, what is this? And I opened it up and it was box after box after box after of Twinkies. It was like 24 boxes of Twinkies. I literally could not eat them. Thankfully, Twinkies last forever. So I finished them. But you know what? Twinkies are not nutritious at all. <laughs> and if someone had offered me a steak and lobster dinner instead of a Twinkie, and I said, no, I'm good. I've got my boxes of Twinkies here. That would be foolish. Not only that, but if I only tried to sustain myself on Twinkies, I would die. That's what C.S. Lewis is saying, is that we're so satisfied with these these pitiful things that we don't even know what it's like to pursue something that actually satisfies us. Well, Jesus tells us what exactly should satisfy us and what does when we are transformed and living for God's kingdom. So if you would, please turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. And once you get there, we're going to go one big paragraph back to chapter 4, verse 23. And I want to start there. Our Lord has come onto the scene. And he has begun his ministry. It's, he's been tempted in the wilderness. He goes to the wedding at Canaan. The wedding at Cana, and he performs his first miracle, and he begins his ministry. And starting at verse 23, it says, Now Jesus began to go all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, 
and healing every disease and sickness among the people. Then the news about him spread throughout Syria. So they brought him all those who were afflicted, those suffering from various diseases and intense pain, the demon-possessed, the epileptics, the paralytics, and he healed them. Large crowds followed him from Galilee, the Decapolis, Jerusalem, Judea, and beyond the Jordan. So we have Jesus starting his earthly ministry in this first century, breaking in, and he begins to display the work of a new king, conquering the present kingdom, telling the good news of the kingdom, doing works that shatter the old kingdom. And as the people saw this, he readies them for what he's about to tell them. Because these people are getting excited. They're going, who can do this? Is this the Messiah? That's what they're talking about. But these people wanted a Messiah that was ready to put down Rome. That was ready to start an insurrection where he would gather his army and rescue them from the, the Roman persecution that they were experiencing. So, all right, he's going to talk. Let's gather together. The people are coming from all over under the banner of the Messiah and this new kingdom. And as it comes to a fever pitch, we come to chapter five. It says, and when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Here it goes. Here's the rally cry. Here's where we get together and we throw out Rome. And he says, after he sat down, his disciples came to him. So he goes up on this side of the mountain and there's a plateau behind him. And he sits down and he gathers his disciples in front of him and with crowds just all out before him on this, this big plateau, he begins to teach them saying, and there's a hush over the crowd as they wait to hear the good news of the coming king. And he says this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who are before you. I can imagine people sitting there going, What? When are you going to get to talking about destroying the Romans? Blessed are the poor? Blessed are those who cry? Blessed are the humble? What are you talking about, Jesus? See, the people, they believed their happiness, they believed their satisfaction in life was going to come from a conquering king who would set them free to live the way that they wanted to. That's what they were expecting. That's how they read the Old Testament. And yet, they were wrong. They were wrong. Because when the king came, when Jesus came here, 
The people's greatest need that they did not recognize was their need to be forgiven of their sins. What they didn't understand is for a people to join a holy God, they must first be made holy. For people to be truly happy and truly blessed, and we'll talk about that word blessed in a second, but in order for people to truly understand and experience happiness, they first had to be cleansed of all their unrighteousness. And they just didn't get it. So Jesus comes onto the scene and he says, yes, 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 you need to be healed physically. You need to be made new. You need to be restored. But you first have to be healed from the inside out. We'll get there. But it's got to start from the inside first. See, we still do that. We still believe that if our circumstances were going to be good, if our circumstances are right, if we just have enough money, if we just have enough stuff, if we just have the job that we really want, if we just have the marriage and the children that are really satisfying, then we'll be happy. Then we'll be satisfied. But the truth is, is then that unless we're changed from the inside out, none of that stuff will ever accomplish satisfaction. See, those are bonuses. Those are add-ons to our contentment. When we've been cleansed, when we've been made righteous, when we're living within the constitution of God's kingdom, believing every article of the constitution and living it out, That's when we experience true happiness, true blessedness. Jesus knew he was about to rock their world. And it was. This set called the Beatitudes, these beautiful things, these beautiful articles of the constitution of the kingdom of heaven is radical. Not in the sense of radical starting, building up rebels that would overrun the Roman government. But rebels that would go against what culture and what every man seemed to believe would bring them satisfaction throughout all of history. Jesus starts out in verse 3, blessed, blessed are the poor in spirit. What does the word blessed mean? Because we use the word, oh, bless you, when we sneeze. Or in the South, oh, bless you, child. Oh, in the South, actually, when someone says, oh, bless you, what they really mean is, I feel sorry for you. (laughs) You've either said something that is dumb or you've done something that's dumb. But what Jesus means right here when he says blessed, we don't have a really good English word. The best word that we can come up with is is happy, is satisfied, is joyful. It's bound up in that word happy, satisfied. Blessed is the person that has these characteristics. Now, is he telling these people, if you're just poor enough, If you just mourn enough, if you just are humble enough, if you're just merciful enough, if you're just hungry enough for righteousness, if you're a peacemaker, if you just get persecuted, then you'll be happy. No. Why? Because in and of ourselves, we can't pursue these things. What Jesus wants us to know and wants us to feel is, wait, I've tried. I've tried to be righteous. I've tried to be humble. I've tried to be mournful. But I can't do it. And this is the message of the kingdom, is that no, you can't. Apart from Christ. 
The king brings a message, brings a constitution, brings the articles of the constitution, and the only way you can obey and abide in them is if you abide in him. It's not that if you're good enough, then you get Jesus. It's that you have to pursue Jesus and he will give you the ability to live by these things. Pursuing Jesus, abiding in Jesus allows you to do what he's calling us to do. And in that, you get happiness. So let's look at and try to understand together what each of these these calls, each of these beatitudes is. It starts off, blessed is the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. I'm gonna be using a lot of cross references and I will give them to you. You don't necessarily have to turn to them. You can if you want to, but I want us to look at these because the Bible is one cohesive unit. We have to look at the Old Testament as feeding into the New Testament. And that Jesus looks back to the Old Testament because it's all one story of how God is redeeming his people. And you can't unhitch the Old Testament from the New Testament. They go together. You can't separate them. And so we'll look at that today because I want us to understand that they do go together. That God's redemptive history is one unit. And so blessed is the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Psalm 34, 18. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. What Jesus is describing to these people is that, no, you can't come to God and think you've got it all together. I guarantee there is Pharisees and scribes in that crowd. Not only that, but there were other people who were following the Pharisees and scribes and and they were following their example and believing that I just live out these laws. If I just do everything that God says, if I don't drag a stool on the Sabbath, if I don't do this and this and this and I do, do, do this and this and this, then God will accept me and I will be happy. But even in the Old Testament, it wasn't just about doing what God said. It was about a heart that was contrite and bare before the Lord. A person that is poor in spirit believes that they don't bring anything to God. You don't bring anything to God. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need your gifts. God doesn't need you. He doesn't need Pete Vargas. We don't offer anything of value to God. So we come to God knowing that we have nothing to offer. Even our works of righteousness are but dung, the Bible says. They're cow poop. So we come to God, we come to Christ with nothing. We are poor in spirit. We are bankrupt spiritually. And the person that recognizes that, that's the person that gets the kingdom. Isaiah 57, 15 says this, for thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. He says, I dwell in the high and holy place and also with him, who is of a contrite and lowly spirit to revive the spirit of the lonely and revive the heart of the contrite. That's who dwells with the Lord. A contrition that goes, I have nothing. I bring nothing. I am bankrupt. God, please accept me because of Christ. that person gets the kingdom. I want you to recognize this ending because it says, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. We have one bookend. Because if you look at verse 10, Jesus ends by saying, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And everything in between is what gets you the kingdom of heaven. 
He uses that term kingdom of heaven. Other gospels use kingdom of God, but this book is primarily written to the Jews and they believe that they shouldn't say the name of God. So kingdom of heaven is a replacement here for kingdom of God. Blessed is the poor in spirit. Blessed, happy is the person who comes in contrition and bankrupts spiritually because they will get the kingdom. Jesus continues, blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Psalm 126, five through six says this, those who sow in tears shall reap with shouts of joy. He who goes out weeping, bearing the seed of sowing, shall come home with shouts of joy, bringing his sheaves with him. Why would we mourn? We mourn because we're bankrupt spiritually. We have nothing to offer to God. Not only that, but we know our sin. I don't know about you, but I sin every day. Not just once, but multiple times in various ways. I get angry, I get frustrated, I get impatient with my children. I'm tempted to lie, I'm tempted to cheat. Throughout my day, I am sinning a lot. And throughout the day, I have to repent a lot. Sometimes I think that if we don't recognize our sin throughout the day and if we're not repenting throughout the day, it's possibly because we're either being dishonest with ourselves or we don't know scripture enough to know how much we sin. Paul said, I'm the chief of sinners. He was an apostle. He wrote almost half of our New Testament. And he's the chief of sinners? If you know yourself in light of a holy God, you'll recognize that you're the chief of sinners and I'm the chief of sinners. And so we mourn. We mourn because we stand before a holy God who has an expectation of perfection and we can't meet it. And we're bankrupt spiritually and it breaks our heart. And so we weep and we wail, but if we do those things, if it breaks our heart and we sow in tears, we'll come home with shouts of joy. We'll reap joy. Happy is the person who understands that they have nothing to offer God that they weep and they mourn over their sin. Those are the people that are comforted. 2 Corinthians 7, 9 through 10 says this, as it is, I rejoice not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. This morning is not a morning, oh, I'm so sorry. Like, oh, you feel bad because maybe you got caught. You kind of feel bad because you know you hurt someone. You kind of feel bad because your conscience is bothering you but not bad enough to be broken and to repent over it. Unbelievers feel bad about doing things. They have a conscience. They know when they've messed up. They know when they've driven drunk and killed someone that it bothers them. Unbelievers who go into war and they kill, it bothers them. There's a sorrow that leads to repentance, that leads to salvation, and there's a worldly sorrow that just leads to feeling bad and eventually leads to eternal death. 
What Jesus is talking about here is a mourning and weeping for your sin because you're a broken person and you need a savior. The person who weeps and and mourns for their sin like that, they find repentance and they find forgiveness and they find comfort. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. It continues on. Blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. I love that he says the earth. Sometimes We talk about heaven a lot, but we don't talk about the new heavens and the new earth, which is really our hope. That's what we're looking forward to, that Jesus gives us our resurrection body and we live with Jesus forever and ever on the new heavens and the new earth will never pass away. We're not gonna be floating up there like cherubs playing a harp. We were talking about this yesterday. Is I think there's probably going to be a lot of the really great stuff that we have here that's just sanctified and perfected. I don't think music is a part of the fall. We're singing in heaven. We're gathered as the nations under the banner of Jesus. We may even have our similar jobs. You've been given gifts to use for God's glory. Some of those things may continue on in the new heavens and the new earth and industry and growth, worshiping God who is the sun. There is no need of sun because God in his glory is the sun and the new heavens and the new earth. Blessed are those who mourn and blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth. What does it mean to be meek? We don't use that word very often these days. It actually kind of sounds, or at least nowadays, it kind of sounds effeminate. It kind of sounds weak. It actually rhymes with meek, meek and weak. But that's not what that means. What it means is controlled power. It's humility. It's gentleness. Jesus even said, come to me for I am gentle and lowly. I've heard people talk and they talk about Jesus. I remember hearing one guy talking about Jesus, how he was a carpenter, so he must have been buff. Because he worked with wood and he had a chisel and he had hammers. That would take a lot of strength. They didn't have electric tools like we do now. They had to do everything by hand and So Jesus must have been buff and he shows it when he goes into the temple and he makes cords and he flips tables. But, I mean, really? Jesus lived in the first century too. They barely had enough to eat. They had to work for their food. And he might have had strong hands. He probably did. But he was probably also very lean too. And that Middle Eastern physique was not buff. But Jesus came and he says, blessed are the meek. He was gentle and lowly. And it was the exact opposite of what was prized at the time. The Romans prized strength and honor. In battle. And warriors. That's what this first world, first century world prized. And Jesus comes and says, no, blessed are the meek, the humble, the gentle. It's interesting. Numbers 12, one through four. Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married. For he had married a Cushite woman. And they said, has the Lord indeed spoken only through Moses? Has he not spoken through us also? It says, and the Lord heard it. And then there's a weird break. It says, now, the man Moses was very meek, more than all men that were on the face of the earth. End break. And suddenly the Lord said to Moses and to Aaron and to Miriam, come out, you three, to the tent of the meeting. 
And what happens in the following verses as the Lord rebukes Miriam and Aaron and vindicates his servant Moses. Kind of a weird thing. They're like, Moses married this Cushite woman. She's not even Jewish. And who made Moses the only spokesperson? Didn't he speak to us too? And then it stops and says, and Moses, he was the meekest person on the face of the earth at the time. Really a strange break. So what does it mean? Why did God insert that in there? Because meekness has the idea of waiting patiently on the Lord. The Lord is your vindication. You don't take it into your own hands. That's what a meekness means, is that you don't seek vengeance. That even when you're wronged and justice should come, that you're not the one who brings it. That's the idea of meekness. Blessed are the meek. And we see that, don't we, in the life of Jesus and the death of Jesus? Could not have Jesus called down his angels and struck every person there in the Roman Empire? Could he have struck down every Pharisee and Sadducee and scribe? Of course he could have. But Jesus knew that he was bringing in the kingdom. And the kingdom had to come through his sacrifice and his resurrection. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Psalm 37, 11 says, but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Again, we look at the Old Testament and the meek inherit the earth. James 1, 21 says, therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. We have to come to God's word with a gentleness, a meekness, a humility that's ready to hear God and the Holy Spirit work into our lives that convicts us of our sin, that shows us our brokenness, our bankruptcy, that causes us to mourn for our sin that causes us to move to repentance. And with humility, we humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God in his word. James continues on in 3.13. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Guys, wisdom is humble. The person who is wise is humble. He doesn't push his own agenda. He doesn't push his own vengeance. She doesn't do what she thinks is right and wants. And we talked about this in Philippians a couple weeks ago. It's not about you. It's a humble person who recognizes they have nothing to offer to God. They're broken and they mourn and repent over their sin. And they're humble and gentle and lowly like Jesus. That's the type of person who inherits the earth. He continues on. And if you're you're noticing, there's a progression. There's a progression of salvation. There's a progression of someone who is becoming sanctified, moving from bankruptcy to mourning and repentance, to humility. To verse six, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Hungering and thirsting for righteousness. You recognize that you have nothing to offer. You recognize that you're bankrupt. You recognize that everything in you is broken and you mourn and you repent and you weep, and you come humble before God and his word. And when you recognize you're empty, you need to be filled. 
You desire that everlasting bread and that everlasting water to fill you up so you can hunger and thirst no more. Psalm 107, 9, for he satisfies the longing soul. We started off talking about satisfaction, that everybody's looking for satisfaction. For God satisfies the longing soul and the hungry soul he fills with good things. Oh, taste and see that the Lord is good. A lot of times I think we mess around with the mud pies and the simple things of this world because we just don't believe God. We're so prideful that we fumble around with these things that we think are going to bring us satisfaction, but in the end we ruin our lives. And we sit around in our selfishness and we sit around and thinking that we've got something to offer God, that we're, we're smart and we work hard and we understand scripture better than anybody. And rather than being humble and coming to the word and coming to God and saying, God, I have nothing and I need you and I'm dependent on you. We're partially filled up on our own dissatisfying things. But if we come broken and mourning and empty, God will satisfy us with good things. If we hunger and thirst for righteousness, we will be satisfied. Isaiah 55, one through three. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread? And your labor for that which does not satisfy. Listen diligently to me and eat what is good and delight yourself in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. God was reaching out to Israel and saying, come on. Hunger and thirst for righteousness come broken. You have nothing to offer. Your righteousness is nothing. It amounts to a hill of beans. But if you come and you hunger for my righteousness, you will be satisfied. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. If you're broken and you're bankrupt and you mourn and you repent and you come to God with humility and you come to your fellow man in humility, your brothers and sisters in Christ, and you're filled with the righteousness of God and not false righteousness or self-righteousness, You can't help but show mercy. As Mark preached a couple of weeks ago, if you've been shown mercy, if you've shown forgiveness, you will be forgiving. You will show mercy. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall be shown mercy. 2 Samuel twenty two twenty six 26 says this, with the merciful, you show yourself merciful. With the blameless man, you show yourself blameless. If you've been forgiven, if you come in humility, if you're broken before God, you can't help but show mercy because you've been shown mercy. Verse 8 Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Brothers and sisters, the only way to have a pure heart is to come to Christ, to see your brokenness, your bankruptcy. You bring nothing to God. You weep and you mourn because you stand before a holy God and you're a sinner. And so you repent. And he comforts you with his forgiveness. And it brings a humility, a meekness, because you know you have no righteousness of your own. But it creates a hunger, a thirst for his righteousness, and you fill up. 
And it causes you to be merciful to your other brothers and sisters and to the world that's dying around you. And God gives you a new heart, a pure heart in Jesus. Ezekiel 36, 25 through 27 says this, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanliness. And from all your idols, I will cleanse you. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. You cannot walk in the statutes of God until you have a new heart. You can fake it, but you won't make it. You can try all you want, but you will be exposed. There's people who say, oh, yeah, I've tried Christianity. It didn't work. You can't try Christianity. You can't try on Jesus like a coat. He has to change you from the inside out. You have to be broken and mourn and repent and be given forgiveness and be comforted and come in a humble manner to him. And he will forgive you. And he will fill you with his righteousness. He will take out your hard, cold, dead heart and produce a soft, clean, new heart. And then you can see God. Those people with a pure heart who have been forgiven and redeemed, those will see God. No one else can see God. There is no other way to see God. Verse nine. When you've been forgiven and given a new heart, you have a new ministry. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called the sons of God. Romans 14, 17 through 19. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men. So then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Romans 8, 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So we have peacemakers who become sons of God. If you've been given a new heart because you repented of all your unrighteousness and been filled with the righteousness of God, you cannot help but pursue peace. You have this ministry, this ministry of reconciliation between each other. Nothing should go left undone. And with the world, Hey, brother, I know you're hurting and I know you're dissatisfied in your life choices. Let me tell you how to be satisfied in life. Let me tell you how to be happy. Let me tell you what true joy is. You've been pursuing all these things that are broken and unfulfilling. Let me tell you how to be right with God. Because you're at war with him. And you will continue to be at war until you come in this way. Those are the people that are called the sons of God. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God, as Romans 8.14 says. And then he continues on. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. There's that phrase again. To them belongs the kingdom. Everyone who does from verse 3 to verse 11, those people get the kingdom of heaven. You want to know how to get to heaven? This is how you get to heaven. It starts with Christ. It's a bankruptcy. It's a mourning. It's a repentance. It's a humility, it's a hungering and thirsting for righteousness that God gives you where he takes out your old heart and puts in a new one, a soft one, a pure one, that you can see God and you get the kingdom of heaven. Because apart from this, you will not see God. 
You still belong to this kingdom. Brothers and sisters, this is an embassy. When you walk into this building, when we're gathered together, this is an embassy of a new kingdom. Sometimes we have the Christian flag in here. Sometimes we don't, and that's okay. But when you walk through these doors, this is the embassy of the God of the heavens and the new earth. And we are his ambassadors. This is our message. We go out and we take the good news of the kingdom to a dying world that is dissatisfied. But we have to first believe it And in order to believe it, we have to understand it. Let me ask you this. Does this characterize your life? Are you broken? Do you mourn for your sin? Do you daily repent? Are you humble? Do you hunger and thirst for righteousness? Do you have a pure heart? Are you satisfied in Christ and in Christ alone? Because brothers and sisters, if you're in here and this doesn't make any sense to you, you're not going to see God. You won't inherit the kingdom of heaven. If you come in pride, thinking that you have something to offer God, you don't. And I don't want you to find that out the hard way. You will go down with this kingdom outside these walls. This world and everything in it is dying away. And when Jesus comes back, he will renew this world and bring a new heavens and a new earth and everyone who's not a part of his kingdom will go away for eternal punishment because they've rejected this. And see, as Jesus sat these people down, this was mind-blowing to them. This was the exact opposite of what they had come to believe and had been taught. But guess what? Jesus had just backed it up. Jesus had just healed paralytics and the blind and the lame and cast out demons It wasn't someone just coming with a, wow, that's a new teaching. He came with power and authority and people were there and they're going, how could this be true? Well, how could those things be true? He was undoing the broken world, this broken kingdom, and he comes to you with a message of what the kingdom is really like, this upside down kingdom. If you don't believe it, you're crazy. But even then, as he finished up his sermon, people walked away. And they didn't believe because it was too hard. It was the rich young ruler where Jesus said, go and sell everything and give it to the poor. And he went away a sad man because he was exceedingly rich. Brothers and sisters, every week I think people walk away from churches where the gospel is preached And they are sad because it's just too much to give up. They don't want to give up the pride. They don't want to give up their, whatever is keeping them back, their own personal idols. They don't want to give those up because it costs a lot. It costs everything. But everything that you have is all an illusion anyway. Brothers and sisters, we will be persecuted if we believe this message because it's the exact opposite of what the world says is good and right and satisfying. And when we tell them they're wrong, they want to yell at us, they want to mock us, they want to persecute us, and it's getting worse. But brothers and sisters, this is the joyous, satisfying, exciting, hopeful Blessed message of the kingdom. This is our kingdom's constitution. Every one of these blessings is an article of the constitution. If you're not living in this constitution, you may not be a part of this kingdom. So examine your heart. Are you satisfied in Jesus? Are you 
experiencing these beatitudes? Be encouraged, brothers and sisters, if you are. Continue to work at them by going to Jesus in dependence and he will bring you here. He will give you these things and you will walk in satisfaction. Come to me, all you are all you who are burdened and heavy laden. Jesus takes up our yoke. Jesus takes up the burden. When you find yourself in Jesus, when you're dependent on him every single day, you can walk in this. <clears throat> you can live this out, but you can't do it apart from Christ. <clears throat> Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you. Thank you that you sent Jesus into our world and the kingdom is at hand. John the Baptist said as Jesus came, behold, the kingdom is at hand. The Savior is here. The King is here and he has broken into our world. To begin. And there is a sense of the kingdom that is already, and there is part of the kingdom that is not yet. And yet, if we walk in your ways, we can be a part of your kingdom and inherit it. Father, help us to do that. Help us to walk in a manner that's worthy of our calling as your children. And for those who do not know you, save them, Father. Convict their hearts today to repent and to mourn over their sin so that they can be filled and comforted with your your righteousness, Father. Thank you for this time. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.